Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Francis J. Beckwith. He's a professor of philosophy and church-state studies at Baylor University and winner of the AAR Book Award in Constructive Reflective Studies. He's here to speak to us about his book, Taking Right Seriously, Law, Politics, and the Reasonableness of Faith, published with Cambridge University Press. Congratulations, Frank, and thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. It's an honor. So this book deals with a range of topics, many of them at the intersection of religion, power, and public life. Can you talk a little bit about how this book project emerged for you? What were you hoping to achieve with this book? Yeah, well, yeah, it begins with a story. And the story actually was the catalyst that kind of got me thinking about uh, the issues that I eventually address, address in this book. I was speaking at Texas Tech University Law School back in 2004. Uh, I was invited to to talk about actually a new book that I had published at the time about some of these issues concerning Darwinism and public education and some of these uh, laws that had been, or actually ordinances that had been uh, uh, passed by school boards that required the teaching of intelligent design. And and I uh, gave my talk, and afterwards there was a uh, gentleman in the audience, uh, one of the professors from one of the science departments who raised his hand and said, uh, all you've given us are religious arguments. And I, and I sort of paused for a moment and I, and I said, wow, I'm relieved. I thought you were gonna say they were bad arguments. And it was a kind of, it was a moment where I thought, you know, uh, even though I've been actually a critic of intelligent design and, and act, most of my early work actually dealt with the legal question. So I kind of have this unusual view. I think it's legally permissible to teach it, but as a view, I think it's flawed. Uh, so I was in sort of an interesting position at this talk where this gentleman was sort of uh, – he kind of agreed with me that it, there was something wrong with the view. But on the other hand, though, he sort of wanted to dismiss the arguments as sort of just religious. And it got me thinking that, that a lot of times in our public discourse, people will, instead of actually wrestling with, let's say, a view that somebody may hold, and, it's, and oftentimes it's on a controversial question – uh, concerning issues like science and public education or bioethics or, or something along those lines, is they often will say, well, this position is just religious. And the one thing that, that occurred to me at that moment and since working on the book is that it's – I don't think you can talk about these things in the wholesale. <laughs> I think you have to kind of talk about them in the retail. And what I mean by that is that each individual issue is slightly different. And it touches on different aspects of the religious life. So, for example, uh, the issue that I was talking about at Texas Tech, the question of science and religion and the question of whether uh, Darwinian evolution is inconsistent with theism, uh, that's a question that's both obviously philosophical, it also is scientific, and it also is theological. And so uh, – the individual that raised that question sort of didn't realize that that there there are different ways to to look at let's say the the issue of again intelligent design. Uh, my my own criticism of the view has nothing to do with the science. It has to do with what I think is a mistaken view of divine action, which is a theological criticism. Uh, but uh, then on other issues, there. So in that issue, you have I, I think uh, rival accounts of how let's say, God ought to act in creation. Uh, 
On the other hand, there are other issues, such as some of the bioethical issues, which I deal with in the book, let's say on embryonic stem cell research, where I think the differences are are more fundamental to uh, different understandings of of human anthropology or philosophical anthropology. So uh, one of the points I make in the chapter on on the issues concerning beginning of life questions is that is that the I think the right way to look at these de- this debate or these debates underneath that general heading uh, has to do with two different or in some cases several different ways of looking at um, or trying to answer a particular question that is who who are we who and what are we and can we know it and so you have rival accounts right you have one account that that says that uh, early embryos for example are not human persons because they lack certain characteristics and then you have other people who say well then that's tr- that's not true the embryo in fact is a person here's why and it turns out that the latter group holds a view that is tightly tethered to a theological tradition and so in that sense i what i'm saying in terms of that issue in the book is that uh yes it's true that most citizens let's say who take v- different positions on that issue probably are motivated uh, by their religious beliefs but but that's but that doesn't mean that that that's the entirety of it and it's not simply a deliverance of let's say their church or synagogue's dogma or anything of that sort uh that there's a lot more complexity going on than, than let's say meets the eye and in the first section of the book, you're kind of addressing this idea of being rational, right? That decisions, mm-hmm. while they might be situated or tethered to theological positions, still make rational sense, either their motives behind them or how they're constructed, which often fall outside of what the general public might say religious beliefs are irrational. So can you talk a little bit about what you're up to in this first section related to reasons and motives and religious beliefs? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you, you find in the legal scholarship today uh, kind of two schools of thought that sometimes complement each other. Uh, one school of thought says that religious beliefs are kind of de facto or, or by their very nature irrational. And the other view is that, well, religious beliefs aren't special, that the sort of questions that religion answers are the same questions that, let's say, the hard sciences answer or, let's say, philosophical views answer. I think that that both views, both under, I think there's something actually to each one. So the latter view, the latter uh, school of thought, I think is partly right, that certainly religious views uh, answer in some cases questions that philosophical views are attempting to answer. And I think that the example of the the question about embryonic stem cell research is actually a good example of that. On the other hand, though, uh, religious beliefs kind of do more. Uh, that is, when people uh, come to their beliefs or, let's say, have held them for their virtually their all, all their lives, uh, there's a sense in which we don't feel as if our beliefs are totally under our control. So I bring this up to my students in class. I, I, I ask them to try to unbelieve something. <laughs> it's really difficult to do. You know, we, beliefs aren't like commodities. They're not things that we can sort of, you know, go to the supermarket and purchase, let's say, Christianity and leave and change our beliefs. Things are a little bit more complex than that. Now, the other kind of school of thought that is sometimes aligned with this is is the view that religious beliefs are irrational. And 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 what and usually the, the the what's doing the intellectual work in that school of thought is a kind of 
uh, view that the way we look at all our beliefs is through the, uh, or we are, ought to assess all our beliefs uh, through uh, the paradigm of the hard sciences. And, and the case I make in the in the book is that that's that's really not a very good way to look at the way in which uh, people uh, hold beliefs, religious or otherwise. So, uh, for example, uh, there's lots of beliefs that we hold, moral beliefs, beliefs about law, uh, that don't really fit very well under the hard sciences, but they seem to be perfectly rational to believe in. And it turns out, you know, I, I spend an awful lot of time in the book pointing out that a lot of these uh, authors oftentimes, I, I think, have a misunderstanding of how religious beliefs develop and interact with challenges. And so one of the criticisms that's leveled against religious belief is that, well, it's insulated from evidence, it's insulated from criticism. And uh, one of the points I make is that that's actually historically not true in some cases, that if you look at, for example, uh, in the history of, of, the, uh, of religion in the West, mostly Christianity and Judaism, you find that uh, those traditions, uh, when encountering, let's say, uh, ideas and thoughts that may appear hostile to those traditions, they either find ways to appropriate those ideas or they uh, you know, try to deal with them in a different way. Now, there's obviously exceptions to this, uh, and some of these authors actually bring out some good exceptions, namely that there are people within those traditions who sort of insulate themselves from the evidence. But, but, my, but even there, I think the fact that they feel that they have to insulate themselves in the evidence means that they're actually taking it seriously, right? So I, I do think it's, you know, that there's a, at least in that literature, a kind of caricature of what, of how sort of the uh, major religious traditions in, encounter uh, differing views and also uh, how uh, people within those traditions themselves uh, intellectually uh, deal with um you know, ideas and beliefs that are challenging to their traditions. And people do it in different ways. And I give a variety of examples uh, in that chapter. In the second section of the book titled Dignity and Personhood, you are looking at issues of bioethics, which you, you've talked a little bit about here. Um, and one of the kind of case studies or examples you, you bring in is the Hobby Lobby case, which many listeners might be familiar with. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit of what you're trying to do or demonstrate through the Hobby Lobby case? Yeah, I, I take a different take on that, I think, from most people. I mean, um, uh, without getting too much into the background of it legally, uh, the, the two, uh, the majority and, and um, dissenting opinions uh, in, in the case, uh, I think both make the same mistake. Uh, uh, Justice Alito writes the majority opinion uh, refers to the um, the views of the Green family, who are the the main uh, uh, plaintiffs in this suit, who own Hobby Lobby, as as uh, referring to their views as kind of merely religious. And I, I say in the chapter that that doesn't fully capture, I think, why people, um, let's say, hold the view that that hold the view that they they do. And their view is that they objected to the fact that the uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services under the Affordable Care Act required them, as, as all other businesses, to uh, purchase for their employees certain contraception. And some of those birth control methods, according to the Green family, result, may result in, in uh, the destruction of embryos. Now, they're ver it's 
to be sure, it's very rare that that could happen. But they were concerned about that, and they didn't want to participate in that because they were uh, opponents of uh, the destruction of, of, of early embryos. So, uh, but I, my, my criticism of, of Alito is that he, he sort of treats it as if it's no different than, let's say, um, let's say if, if you had a Catholic business owner who um, believed in transubstantiation. Uh, I, I think that there are, are different uh, beliefs within uh, religious traditions that have uh, are situated differently in terms of their intellectual credentials. So uh, the Green family may very well, I have no doubt that they believe it because they think the Bible teaches th- their viewpoint, but there are a load of other, uh, lots of other people that uh, who hold similar views? Who think that not that not only do their scriptures uh, teach this, but they also believe that they can be defended through sort of rational argument. Uh, on the other hand, Justice Ginsburg, uh, I think, raises some really good criticisms against Alito's analysis in terms of the law. She points out that well, if we're going to give exemptions to people um, for these generally applicable laws uh, concerning health care, why can't we do that for Let's say, um, let's say certain groups that let's say are against blood transfusion or the use of medicine at all, and I think that's a that's a pretty good counter uh, to what Alito's saying. But then she goes on to say, but the court should never deal with uh, whether um, religious beliefs can be assessed. Uh, we shouldn't be in the business business of assessing the reasonableness of religious beliefs. And I go on to point out that in fact the courts have been assessing religious beliefs since the beginning and they can't help but do it. So a very famous case from the 1970s called Wisconsin versus Yoder, the Supreme Court dealt with a, a, a Amish family that wanted to be exempted from compulsory education. And the argument that they gave supporting the family was the Amish have this wonderful tradition they've, uh, of educating their children, they've contributing to the common good, and as I tell my students uh, when we go over this case, it's clear that the court would have not given an exemption if it were just like a couple of parents that just wanted to take their kids out of school. So there's a sense in which the courts have, in fact, been making these judgments. And I don't think they – I think they can't help but do it. I think it's just part of the uh, the nature of judging and especially uh, when – there's something like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act where the courts are in fact required to assess whether the government has a compelling state interest, which means that the government has to have a really, really good reason for this law. Well, if they do, that that involves kind of balancing what the religious group is doing against the interest of the state. And I, I don't I don't think there's any way around it. So I'm critical of both both sides in this. Uh, I think that um, uh, Alito kind of diminishes sort of the intellectual credentials of of the Green family. On the other hand, I think uh, Ginsburg um, uh, underestimates how the court, in fact, does its business. Now, in the final section, you you look at intelligent design, which you talked about a little bit, but you also have a chapter on same-sex marriage. Can you talk a little bit about how arguments for and against same-sex marriage are constructed? And how do each of them make rational sense to their subjects? Yeah, that chapter deals with um, uh, the issue of, of, of businesses and vendors uh, that don't want to participate in same-sex ceremonies. And so part of the, the case that I make there, I, I take the position that 
there should be exemptions for such businesses, but it's a pretty narrow argument because the point that I try to make is that uh, having to do with it has to do with more with the nature of the businesses. Uh, so, uh, for example, let's say um, we know of these cases. There was a recent case in Washington State concerning a florist. Uh, a uh, recent case in uh, Colorado involving a baker and a photographer in New Mexico. And so, uh, for example, I don't use this per per particular example in the book, although I wish I had. I thought of it after the book came out. Uh, imagine, um, for example, there was a, um, a Baptist photographer. We'll call him Russell. And uh, he's... Uh, has a friend named Aristotle who's Greek Orthodox, and Aristotle asks him uh, to photograph his child's baptism. And Aristotle says, oh, "Excuse me." Russell says to Aristotle, uh, "Look, I'm I'm Baptist. I don't believe that uh, in infant baptism. I believe that only adults can be baptized. I have no problem photographing you and your family." Uh, at next to or any or in any body of water, it could be a lake, uh, a stream, a gushing fire hose. But I cannot participate in a liturgical event that I don't believe actually um, embodies what I think uh, Christ taught me or Christ teaches us. And so, what, what I argue in this chapter is that if we if we if we think about this issue in the light of what uh, what what has been called justificatory liberalism. What's that? It's a, it's a school of thought that has its roots in thinkers like John Rawls, Ronald Dworkin, and others who argue that uh, on, on matters over which um, there is deep disagreement, um, that the government should err on the side of liberty, and especially when it comes to religious practices. And I spend a lot of time in the chapter explaining how the marriage issue is different than, let's say, um, uh, other sorts of activities that people engage in. We, we think of, uh, of um, weddings, a lot of people do, not everybody, uh, think, we think of weddings as we think of, let's say, baptisms and bar mitzvahs, and less like birthday parties and bachelor parties. And I think the reason is that there's a kind of, we connect these activities or practices to something greater than ourselves, a sort of transcendent reality. And so I think, for example, uh, if you look at like the case up in Washington State, which I, I briefly, I actually just footnote in, in the book, it uh, was just settled uh, uh, last week in the state of Washington, you had a, a woman uh, florist who, who did not want to um, uh, contribute, I don't know what the right term is, participate in uh, a, a same-sex wedding by... Um, creating certain types of um, flower arrangements. Uh, and yet, uh, both, uh, both of the uh, gentlemen who, who were getting married are actually clients of hers, who she has served for years. And so for her, it was really the ceremony and not the individual. And so the point I make in that chapter is that I think what would be helpful in cases like this is if we did make distinctions between kind of liturgical events and even the, di the difference between, let's say, the types of services provided. So uh, expressive services like, um, let's say, um, that are close to the arts like photography and flower arrangements and even certain types of uh, 
of uh, creation of baked goods is different than, let's say, selling someone a loaf of bread. <laughs> you know, so I, I so I make all these distinctions in order to kind of draw out what I think uh, is important religiously in this debate that maybe some people miss. Are there any final thoughts that we didn't get to touch upon that you want listeners and potential readers to come away with? In the intelligent design chapter, I'm very critical of of, of the intelligent design advocates, uh, largely for reasons that I mentioned earlier in the interview. I think that uh, the view that that is often presented uh, kind of diminishes divine action. What I mean by that is that the the ID advocates oftentimes present their view as if they have to find space in the natural sciences for God to act. And I make the argument that among sort of traditional theistic uh, views, such as, you know, found in, uh, in, in, in Judaism and Christianity and Islam, God, uh, God doesn't actually play that kind of role in terms of um, uh, his creative activity. And so I'm also quite critical, by the way, of, of, of some of the kind of new atheist types as well, because I think they actually have the same misunderstanding. And I conclude that in a weird way, both sides of this debate actually agree, uh, and I think they're both mistaken. Great. Well, thank you for writing a great book, and thanks for making some time to talk about it. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you.